Lord for him doing the work of an evangelist, which we're called to do, and, and uh, praise the Lord for the Lord's work in your life. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 22. We want to look at verses 23 through 33 this morning, the God of the living. Uh, we had Sharon's uh, service yesterday. I, I thought about sharing this message. In fact, uh, somebody said, well, you could do part one and part two. And I uh, said, no, probably not going to do that. But uh, the God of the living, I certainly was thinking about it as we even had the service yesterday. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for uh, your word. I pray that you would give me grace to teach accurately and clearly uh, glorious truth that you brought out, Lord, uh, to these Sadducees. And uh, Lord, uh, when you were uh, done with what you had to say, they had nothing else to say. And so, Lord, we thank you for the clarity of the scriptures, even as... Uh, shared by you, expounded by you back here uh, when you were alive. So, Lord, we commit our study to you and ask your blessing upon it. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Matthew, and uh, the theme is Christ the King, and we have worked our way down to chapters 21 through 23, the formal rejection of the king. In context, in our study here in Matthew 22, we are in what is called the Passion Week, the last week of Christ's earthly ministry culminating in the crucifixion. Uh, We might also call this testing week, testing week. You see, in Exodus chapter 12, 1 through 6, it was very clear that the Passover lamb was to be taken and set aside on the 10th day of the month. It was then to be thoroughly inspected to make sure it was without blemish, And then if it passed inspection, it was to be killed four days later on the 14th day of the month. Well, the thorough and challenging exam that the religious leaders applied to Jesus during the Passion Week was really the fulfillment of this typology. And Jesus, as the spotless Lamb of God, passed all the tests he was given with flying colors. It was Tuesday. It's still Tuesday. A lot happened on Tuesday. Uh, We had the uh, triumphal entry on Sunday. Uh, Jesus wept over Jerusalem on that day. He observed the temple activities, came back on Monday. And as he's coming back, he curses the fig tree, and then he clears the temple. Tuesday, Jesus explains the withered fig tree, and then we have a series of temple controversies with the religious leaders. We find ourselves right in the middle of that context here. First, the Pharisees and the Herodians came to Jesus and with great flattery said to Jesus, Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They thought this was a gotcha question, that no matter how Jesus answered, it would get him into trouble, either with the people or with the Roman government. But Jesus profoundly answered, saying, Render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. This answer was so profound that even his critics marveled and went away in silence. Now come the Sadducees with their challenge, as seen in Matthew 22, 23 through 33, parallel text in Mark 12, 18 through 27, and also Luke 20, 27 through 40. Let's pick it up, Matthew 22 and verse 23. The same day the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him. So the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. 
They didn't believe in miracles or the supernatural. They were too smart for that, you understand. They, they were the rationalists. And as I said in children's moment, it's often quipped that the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, and, and that's why they were sad, you see. Uh, <clears throat> flounders here as well as children's moment. But anyway, <laughs> it's an easy way to remember what they were all about. Uh, not only did they not believe in the resurrection, they thought that a person went out of existence at the time of death. So truly, truly, they thought that their best and only life was now, right? And they lived accordingly. As I say, the Sadducees were rationalists. Uh, they held that the authoritative scriptures were only the first five books, uh, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, uh, also known as the Pentateuch. So that was it. For, for them, the scriptures were the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. And the Sadducees were wealthy aristocrats. I mean, they were the upper echelon of society in terms of power, in terms of money. They had a lock on the high priesthood, and they controlled the activities of the temple. And they were very closely tied in many ways to the Roman government, which allowed them favors to maintain their power position among the Jews. Now, there were various Jewish groups on the scene at this time. Let me just very briefly touch on this. Uh, we had the Pharisees. They were the religious conservatives. The word Pharisee means separated one. Uh, they were the religious conservatives, and they held to the truth of the resurrection. They were very anti-Roman. They were not pro-Roman government at all. The Sadducees were the religious liberals, the aristocrats who controlled the priesthood and the temple, as I say. And they were the rationalists who didn't believe in the resurrection. They were pro-Rome. kind of. They were in bed with Rome because Rome allowed them to kind of continue on in this power position. The Herodians, they were Jews who were supportive of the Herodian family and their political agenda. They too were pro-Rome. And then you had the Zealots. They were nationalistic Jews who were political military activists. And they were very anti-Rome. And then the Essenes. They were a reclusive, set-apart, legalistic sect who majored on copying the Old Testament scriptures, which we are indebted to, by the way, because they produced those Dead Sea Scrolls. And so we say thank you, Essenes, although you had some serious problems. Now, the Sadducees were not happy with Jesus because he had just cleansed the temple, throwing out the money changers and teaching with authority on the temple premises, which they considered to be their turf. A footnote, when the temple was destroyed in AD 70, the Sadducees as a group, along with the priesthood, ceased to exist. While there is record of various Pharisees coming to true faith, most famously Saul turned the Apostle Paul, there is no record of any Sadducees ever coming to saving faith. So here they come to Jesus with all their rationalistic thought focused through the prism of Moses, that is the first five books of the Bible, and they too thought they had a gotcha question for Jesus. 
They had never worked. But they're trying it. Verse 24, here's, where they, here's, here's what they were doing. Uh, saying, teacher, teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Uh, note they come very respectfully, calling Jesus teacher. And they quote from Moses. Of course, that was what they considered to be the authoritative scriptures. And uh, they believe that uh, Moses was unique among all the other so-called prophets. They didn't put any stock really in the others, not much, not like Moses. They believed he was unique above all others. And in some ways he was. Uh, they put great stock in the concluding verses of Deuteronomy, which was right, uh, which exalted Moses in a, in a unique way. We read in Deuteronomy 34, but since then there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, who, the, whom the Lord knew face to face in all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh, before all his servants, and in all his land. And by all that mighty power, and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. So they were right. Moses is a very unique fellow back here in the Old Testament. So they believed that the teaching of Moses uh, had special authority. And uh, they made their point by quoting Moses here. And in asking this question, they thought they had an air airtight argument that shows the resurrection is rationally not possible. And they reference the text from Deuteronomy 25. Let's read it together. Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Now, can we stop right here and say, thank you, Lord, that we're not under the uh, law anymore? <laughs> My wife said amen. But anyway. Uh, <clears throat> and it shall be that the firstborn son, which she bears, will uh, succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Inheritance was a really big deal in Israel. Uh, this command required the available brother of a deceased man to marry his brother's widow. And the firstborn son was then to be regarded as the son of the deceased brother and carry on his family name and inheritance. This also served as a welfare protection for the widow. Well, this was called the, the Leverett Law. Uh, Leverett is from the Latin word lever, uh, which means husband's brother. And we see Judah trying to implement this law in Genesis 38, even before it was in the law of Moses. And it didn't go well. We do see it in relation to Boaz taking Ruth as a wife, and it worked well in that case. Well, with this Leverite law in view, they pose this hypothetical situation to Jesus, thinking it makes the idea of the resurrection look foolish. Thus, they are seeking to discredit Jesus publicly. And here's the way it went down. Here's their, their hypothetical situation. Verse 25. Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died. Of course, they're not saying it's hypothetical. They're presenting this as a legitimate case. Uh, the first died after he had married, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. 
likewise the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, here's our question. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. This question was totally disingenuous because they didn't even believe in the resurrection. It was not intellectually honest. It was all intended to make Jesus look silly and lose credibility. Now, it is thought that the Sadducees had probably often used this question on the Pharisees, who had no real answer. And so they thought they could stump Jesus with it as well. Now, in their question, they made some assumptions. The question assumes that life in the afterlife will be on the same basis as our experience in this life. Which, by the way, the Pharisees also thought, but which has no backing from Scripture. In other words, they assumed that if people were married here, they would also be married in the afterlife, if there was such a thing, which they didn't believe in. There were no children involved, so none of them had a priority claim to the woman. In their way of thinking, therefore, it was impossible for her to be morally married to seven men at the same time. And therefore, the idea of the resurrection was ridiculous. This is what their thinking is. Now, we could stop right here. When you get your assumptions wrong, you most certainly get the conclusion wrong. And that was the case here. Sometimes people are very dogmatic about certain presuppositions. But the problem is that they're wrong in their assumptions. And it's really serious when these errors involve God's truth. Here's Jesus' answer. Verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken. Not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. Jesus points out two errors. He tells them flat out they're wrong. You're mistaken. Because they don't properly know the scriptures. And they don't understand the power of God. They are ignorant of the scriptures. And they have a very low view of God's power. By the way, they go together. The word mistaken means to go astray. And when Jesus says you are mistaken, it could literally be translated, you have misled or deceived yourselves. The problem was that they were wrong in accepting only those first five books of Moses. And their selective treatment of the scriptures led them astray. One of the great warnings from God is that we dare not take away from or add to the scriptures. We find this at the beginning of the Bible. You know, that first section of the, the Bible is the, the five books of Moses. And we see it at the end of the Bible. And notice what we find repeated in Deuteronomy 4.2. You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. And then again in chapter 12. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. Fast forward. Come to the last book of the Bible. Revelation 22, 18 and 19. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. Which is kind of the conclusion of the whole matter. I mean, Revelation quotes uh, 
far more than any other book in the Bible from all the previous uh, sections of the Bible. Kind of ties it all together. And he says, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. Watch out. You don't want to add to it. Somebody says, hey, I got, I got a, I've got a word from God. Really? I thought revelation was the conclusion of the matter. You better watch out. Uh, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. As my mentor, John Whitcomb, used to say, I'm not sure what this means, but I don't want to go there. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life and from the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Don't mess with the book. Very serious. Thus, the Bible both begins with the books of Moses and concludes with the book of Revelation by giving a strong warning not to add to God's revelation or take away from it. Invariably, those who take away from the scripture err greatly because they are not holding to the whole counsel of God. And if you're not holding to the whole counsel, you're missing something. And we need to hold to the whole counsel, but it needs to be rightly divided. We need to rightly divide the word. Uh, we have the law in the Old Testament. We're not under the law. We're under grace today. Uh, you have Israel, the emphasis in the Old Testament. We're in the church age. You got to keep these distinctions right. You have to rightly divide the word. But all of the errors that the Sadducees were making stem from a wrong view of Scripture and thus an improper understanding of God's Word. 1 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16 says, The believer now today has the mind of Christ. That's an awesome mind. And because of this, we have the potential to appraise all things, Paul says. And where we find the mind of Christ is in the Scriptures. Paul in 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 17 says, The inspired Scriptures are able to show one how to be saved, the wisdom that's needed for salvation, and it's able to fully equip us for every good work. This is known as the sufficiency of Scripture. And I argue strongly that the Word of God is all-sufficient for every spiritual issue that we deal with related to salvation and spiritual service and sanctification. It is all-sufficient. But in order to be fully equipped, you have to have a good grasp on the whole counsel of God and rightly divide it. Now, John MacArthur was asked recently, what is the greatest need today in the church? And he said, a lack of discernment. And I fully agree with that. We don't know the Scriptures. That is the professing church of God. We don't know the Scriptures. we got everything else. we got all kinds of self-help. we got all kinds of entertainment. Uh, we got all kinds of feel-good, whatever you want to call it. Recently, Legionnaire Ministries and Lifeway Research partnered to find out what is the state of evangelicalism in America. And their report is called the the 2022 State of Theology. So this is very recent. Those responding to this survey were professing evangelicals who supposedly, supposedly, strongly agreed in the Bible as the highest authority and the importance of encouraging non-Christians to trust Jesus as their Savior. And what did they find out? Here's what they found out. Half of the respondents said they believed that God does change. Two-thirds believe that people are born innocent and not in sin, 
with a majority agreeing with the statement, everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. 73% believe that Jesus is a created being and not eternal God. 53% believe that the scripture is not literally true. 56% do not believe that Jesus is the only way to God. And 60% believe that the Spirit is a force and not a person. What does this tell us about most professing evangelicals? They don't know the Scriptures. They don't know the Word of God. And they don't know God. They're not saved. I don't care how you vote. If you don't know the scriptures, you don't know anything. Not really. Not that it really matters for time and eternity. Ed Glasscock says, uh, Had they, the Sadducees, recognized the authority of all the scriptures, such as Isaiah, Daniel, Job, they would have known that resur the resurrection was clearly taught. Lots of people champion their own thoughts instead of putting stock in God's word. They are the rationalists. A lot of confidence in, boy, my ability, my great mind, my great thoughts, my thinking process. Okay, I'm glad you've got a good mind. The Sadducees were rationalists. They brought the Bible to the bar of human reason. Instead of bringing human reason to the bar of Holy Scripture. We don't figure out God or His revelation. He must reveal it to us. You know, we're very dependent on the Holy Spirit. He shows us our sin. He convicts the world of sin, of righteousness. He enlightens us. We don't figure it out on our own. In fact, the Bible says our thoughts are not His thoughts. That's why the Bible says in Proverbs 3, 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. They did not really know the scriptures and therefore they did not know the power of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. A low view of God comes from an errant view of scripture. Get the scriptures right and you'll properly understand the greatness of God. So the Sadducees had a low view of God because they had an errant view of Scripture. <clears throat> and what you think of God, you think of God's Word. They go hand in hand. Psalm 138.2, I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness, for you have exalted above all things your name who you are, God, and your word. They're, they're put on the same level here. The scriptures exalt God and tell us of his omnipotence. The scriptures define God as the almighty and tell us that with God all things are possible. He as the creator of all has the power to give life. And as the God of life, he most certainly has the power to resurrect the dead back to life. It's a very small view of God to think he doesn't have the power to resurrect the dead. The resurrection of Christ has forever answered that question, certainly for us 
as believers. Again, Ed Glasscock says, the idea of power is the, the exertion of a dynamic force. And they were ignorant of God's dynamic energy, which is greater than even the force of death. <clears throat> Their view of God was too small. They believed his authority or influence was limited to the realm of the material world. Thus, part of their failure lay in a weak view of God. But again, not knowing the scripture and not knowing the power of God go together. They had a weak view of scripture and that translated into a weak view of God. Jesus continues, verse 34, In the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. Now, in the Old Testament, they did see dimly, much more dimly than we do now with further revelation. The fact of the resurrection was known in the Old Testament, but they did not know that God could and will translate the bodies of the dead into a whole other form that we call glorified bodies. Notice Paul in the resurrection chapter builds on this. He says, I tell you a mystery, that which previously we didn't know. But now it's being revealed. I tell you a mystery, the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. You know what? You're going to live with your body forever. But it's going to be in an upgraded form. Philippians chapter 3 our citizenship is in heaven for us as believers, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's coming from heaven. And what's he going to do when he comes? Who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body. Hey, we're moving from lowly to glorious, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. He's got the power to do it. The idea of a resurrected, glorified body was new revelation. Jesus here in Matthew twenty-two thirty says in the resurrection, they will not marry, emphasizing males, nor will they be given in marriage, emphasizing females, which is a way of saying there will be no marriage in heaven. Rather, when it comes to the issue of marriage, we will all be like the angels of God. You see, angels don't marry. And they don't procreate. But they will live forever in God's presence. John MacArthur says, In heaven men will be like angels, equally spiritual in nature, equally deathless, equally glorified, and equally eternal. Notice, Jesus did not say, We will be angels. But in regard to the issue of marriage, we will be like them. That's his point. Sometimes people say, with no Bible knowledge, oh, they're now an angel. <laughs> no, uh, they never were and they never will be. Wycliffe Bible Commentary. This passage does not imply that the dearest of earthly relationships will be forgotten in the life to come. Just how these relationships will be affected by the possession of glorified bodies is not explained. But all scripture supports the view that the resurrected state is one of blessedness and perfect fellowship. I would remind us that in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, When the Lord comes, we will be caught up together with them, with departed believers. And Paul says, 
These are words of comfort. We will certainly know each other. We will not lose our identity. Note what Jesus said will be the kingdom experience in Matthew 8, 11. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west, sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. You see, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob do not lose their identity in the kingdom, and neither will we. Abraham will be Abraham, and Dwight will be Dwight, I guess. I never really liked the name Dwight, but I guess maybe I'll be Dwight yet. (laughs) Anyway, they will not lose their identity in the kingdom. None of us will. On the Mount of Transfiguration, which was a kingdom preview, Moses and Elijah were there. They did not lose their identity. They were still Moses and Elijah. In the kingdom, we will still be who we are, only in glorified form. And the love and fellowship we know there will be on a greater level than anything we have known here. It's an upgrade. And we will know this depth of fellowship with everyone. Even our, you know, those people that we say sometimes, you know, uh, some people you just don't like, some, some fellow Christians you don't like, but you do love them, you know? We say, we don't necessarily like them, but we love them. You know, we use that language. Well, it's going to be all love there. We're going to have great fellowship with, with everyone. We really can't imagine exactly how it will be, but it will be glorious. And it would be an error to think that our relationships in heaven will be inferior to that which we have known on earth. Everything's going to be better there. ESV Study Bible, Jesus' reference to the power of God suggests that God is able to establish relationships of even deeper friendship, joy, and love in the life to come. God has not revealed anything more about this, though Scripture indicates that the eternal glories awaiting the redeemed will be more splendid than anyone can begin to ask or think. Amen. Well, what the Sadducees failed to realize is that in the resurrection, the afterlife will be of a different order than what we have known here. It will be infinitely greater as we will live in glorified bodies. Everything about it will be better. Notice what Paul says, again, in this resurrection chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It's breaking down, deteriorates, goes back to dust. It's sown in corruption. That's where we're all going eventually. We're all going to die unless Jesus comes in our lifetime. We're all headed for corruption. And sometimes people say silly things like, I I ran into a guy I hadn't seen for 30 years, and he said, you haven't changed a bit. I said, liar. (laughs) Either that or your eyesight is really failing you in a big way, brother. Uh, the body is sown in corruption. It's breaking down and it gets to the point where we die and then it corrupts. But it's raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor. It's weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. A footnote here. In Genesis 6, 1 through 4, there is a great discussion about the sons of God marrying and having sexual relations with the beautiful daughters of men. Commonly, sons of God is a phrase that is used of angels, albeit in this case, fallen angels. 
Therefore, it would seem that we have demonic activity in relation to these beautiful women. But exactly the nature of it is debated. Well, consistent with Christ's emphasis that angels don't marry or procreate, I take the view that the sons of God were demons working through the bodies of fallen men. These demons, in conjunction with this arrangement, in keeping with the strategy of the devil, were seeking to produce a superhuman race of extra-large people with the goal of wiping out God's people. Apparently, the offspring of these uh, fallen angels working through human agency in conjunction with the daughters of men produced giants in the land. Thus, I believe that all humanity is traced back to Adam, as Paul indicates in Romans 5. And there is no such thing as half-angel and half-human. Angels themselves do not marry nor procreate. However, fallen angels can possess people and work through them on such a level that they are controlling what is happening in the life of the person. I believe these fallen angels, this particular category of fallen angels, demons, were so bad that at the time of the flood they were bound in a special place that Peter calls Tartarus. Well, this coincides with Christ's teaching here that angels are different in that they don't marry. Well, having established that there is going to be a different order of relations in the resurrection, Christ then went on to specifically address the Sadducees' double heir, that people go out of existence at the time of death, and that there is no resurrection. So he says, verse 31, But concerning the resurrection of the dead... Have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, These Sadducees thought they had an airtight theological argument. But Jesus takes them right back to that portion of Scripture that they consider to be inspired and authoritative. Namely, the books of Moses. And more specifically, to the book of Exodus. Not only were they wrong about the canon, you know, what belonged in the canon of Scripture, but they were also wrong about the portion they did hold to. As a form of rebuke concerning their error about the resurrection, he said to them, Have you not read? <laughs> he keeps saying this to these religious leaders. You guys ever do any reading? Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Don't you know what God says? Again, this would have been a major insult as it calls into question their knowledge of the scriptures that they prided themselves on. I mean, these are the religious elite. I mean, these are the high priests. These are the people who control the temple. We know the scriptures. We're the authority here. Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Note how Jesus puts this. What was spoken to you by God. This was spoken by God. And he quotes uh, Exodus 3. Who was God talking to in Exodus 3? Well, Moses. But he says, it specifically was spoken to you. It applies to you. In speaking to Moses, the message was also for you. You see... We need to take the word of God personally. God is speaking to you and to me. All scripture is given by God and is profitable. God has something to say to each one of us in all of the scriptures. You want a letter from God? You want a message from God? It's right here. 
God has spoken to you and to me. Specifically in view here, Jesus goes on to quote Exodus 3, 6, where God said, we pick it up 32, mid-conversation, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus used this verse to prove to them that the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, does indeed teach the truth of the resurrection. This involves precision interpretation in rightly dividing the word. The sense of what Jesus is saying is made to turn on the sense of I am. Not I was. Yeah, that used to be the arrangement. But I am. The current arrangement. As Jesus said in Matthew 5.18, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all are fulfilled. Every last little detail must be fulfilled. Jesus here in this verse makes two major interrelated points. Number one, the patriarchs are still very much in existence. They're still very much alive. And two, God is still in covenant relationship with them, meaning the terms of the covenant must yet be fulfilled, which requires the truth of the resurrection. I'll unpack it for you. You saw the resurrection there, right? You see it right there. Right? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. God is not the God of the devil. How is this in this phrase? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. How is the resurrection seen there? Well, let me explain. The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had been dead for centuries. And yet when God speaks to Moses, he says, I am. Not I was. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God was right then, still, at that very moment. Their God, indicating they were still in existence. They were not dead in the sense of ceasing to exist. For God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. These men were still living. Alive in their spirit, alive in their soul although their bodies had been dead for centuries. By saying, we need, you know, people are, there's three parts to us, right? We got a body, but you know, the real you lives inside the body. You got a soul and a spirit that lives inside your body. And simply because your body's dead doesn't mean you're dead. You're still alive. By saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, God makes it clear that he was still in personal relationship with each one of these men. Death had not changed that reality, had not changed that arrangement. Now, the word death means separation. That's literally what the word death means. And until we are born again, we are spiritually dead, spiritually separated from God. We don't have a relationship with God. But when we put our faith in Christ... We are united with Christ and made spiritually alive. And from then on forever, we will share in God's life for all eternity. Nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. Nothing can ever separate us from the spiritual life we now have in Christ. 
Jesus said, John 5, 24, most assuredly, it's an emphasis here, most assuredly, I, I like the old King James, verily, verily, truly, truly. I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has, present tense, everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into the realm of life. And then again, in John chapter 11, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Who believes in me, though he may die physically, he shall live spiritually. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? For the believer, death is merely a physical reality. But there is spiritual life on the other side of death. At physical death, the spirit and the soul depart to live in God's presence. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, absent from the body, present with the Lord. As he says in Philippians 1, 21, to die is gain. And he goes on to say that to depart and be with Christ is far better. Psalm 16, 11 says, in the presence of the Lord is fullness of joy. Now in John eleven twenty six, when Jesus said, whoever lives and believes in me, when he says lives there, he was referring to physical life. You see, you have to believe in this life. You have to believe while you're still living. The sense then is whoever is living in this life and believes in me will never die. Once you die, it's too late. You have to do it while you're still alive. Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed unto men once to die. Then what? Then what? But after this, the judgment. Death seals the deal. That's why there's such an urgency. Wherever one is at the time of death, whether a believer or an unbeliever, that is where they will be for all eternity. Whoever lives physically and believes in Jesus shall never die. That is spiritually. In the Greek... Never in John eleven twenty six involves a double negative, which is the idea of never, never die. The emphasis is emphatic. The truth is so strong that the New Testament uses the word sleep for death of a believer. And sleep is a temporary condition. Spiritually, we will never, never die, although the body may sleep for a while. My mother was dying. I was talking to somebody. I didn't even know this lady. She was a stranger. But uh, I, I mentioned that my mom was dying. And she was trying to comfort me. She was throwing out some religious jargon to try, you know, comfort words to try to comfort me. And uh, it's like when my mother died that morning, she died. You know, the hospice person came and said, you know, and, and we, we were all in agreement that she went to glory. And he said, yeah, she's there because she deserved it. I said, oh, no, she didn't deserve it. <laughs> It's like I was blaspheming over my dead mother who was between. My dead mother had become between us. He was on the other side of the bed and I was here. I said, she was a believer in the grace of God. We're trophies of grace here. We don't deserve anything. It's by grace. He looked at me like I was on some kind of methane or something. I mean, it was just some problem. But as I was talking to this lady, she was giving me these comfort words. And I told her my mom was currently in the land of the dying, but on her way to the land of the living. And you know what she said to me? Nothing. She had no idea how to respond to that. 
But this is exactly what Jesus emphasized. Those who believe in him will never, never die. And they said, do you believe this? you believe this? It's a good question. Do you believe this? I mean, never, never die. At death, they go to the glory land where they are alive, more alive than they have ever been here. And there they await the resurrection of the body where glorification will be complete. God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. I love that. The God who is alive, the living God, is the God of the living. Now, when God said to Moses, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, that not only meant that they were still existing. Yes, it meant that, but it, not only, it didn't mean only that. It also meant that he, as their covenant-keeping God, was still in covenant relationship with them. You see, if you do a study of this, you will find that everywhere in the Scriptures where you have this phrase, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in the Scriptures, it is consistently code for covenant relationship. Let that sink in. Selah. This quote in Matthew twenty-two thirty-two 32 comes from Exodus 3 in the context of God appearing to Moses in the burning bush. God had been silent for centuries. I mean, they were down in Egypt for 400 years for crying out loud. It must have seemed like God had forgotten his promises to the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But then suddenly... This supernatural interaction with Moses occurred with God revealing himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Exodus 3.13, we read God saying, Then Moses said to God, rather, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What's his name? What's his name? What shall I say to them? Understand, Moses was not merely asking, who are you, in terms of a title. The question then would have been phrased in terms of who. But here the question is framed in terms of what, as in what is his name. You see, what Moses really wants to know is what kind of a God are you? What defines you in terms of our circumstances as a people. After all, they've been languishing in Egypt for hundreds of years with no clear revelation from God. Moses, in effect, asked, in light of all that we have gone through as a people and are continuing to go through, we want to know, what kind of a God are you? In response, God told Moses to tell them that his eternal name is, I am which is indicative of his eternal, unchanging character. And in that context, he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. The God of covenant relationship, who's been in covenant relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's that's who I am. I'm the God of covenant relationship. I'm the eternal God whose character never changes. This, he says, is my name forever. And this is my memorial, what I'm to be known by and remembered by 
for all generations. Thus God for time and eternity here linked his name I am, which signifies him as the eternal unchanging God in an eternal covenant relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. In the scriptures, whenever this terminology, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is given, it consistently has in view that he is the God who is in covenant relationship with them. The Abrahamic covenant, what I call the mother of all covenants, was given to Abraham, then reiterated to Isaac, and then again to Jacob. Let me just very quickly, very quickly at this point, I don't know who moved that clock ahead, but shame on them. (laughs) To Abraham, God says, I give to you, Abraham, I give to you and your descendants after you, the land. And then to Isaac. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you, you personally, Isaac, and your descendants, I give all these lands. How about Jacob? To Jacob. Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, the God of your father Isaac, and the land on which you lie, I give to you and your descendants. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. Hebrews 11 says that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had all dwelt in temporary tents. They never owned any land. They never possessed any of it, except for that burial plot that Abraham purchased. Hebrews eleven thirteen says, quote, These all died in faith, not having received the promises. They didn't get it. Now, let me ask you. Let me ask you. What good is the promise of the land if you never possess it. Did God not carry through on his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they personally would possess the land? They all died. So how can it be that these covenant promises can be fulfilled for them? Answer, God's covenant relationship with them, God's covenant promises to them requires a future resurrection. They did not see it before they died, so they must be resurrected to see the fulfillment of these promises. The language of covenant relationship demands a future resurrection. Thus, Exodus 3, 6 shows that the truth of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still living in the spirit realm, but also as people of covenant promise, that they must be resurrected to see the good of God's covenant promises. God will raise the dead because he cannot fail to keep his covenant promises. Again, we already saw it, but Matthew, I say to you, many will come from the east and west, sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. They're still there in their identity in the kingdom by way of resurrection. Verse 33, and when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Jesus had seen something in the text that everyone else had missed. Namely, the patriarchs are still living, and by way of covenant relationship, their resurrection is assured. When the multitudes heard this, they were astonished. In fact, it says in the parallel, in in Luke chapter 20, verse 39, some of the scribes said to him, Teacher, you have spoken well. And then it says, And they dared not question him anymore. Once again, Jesus silenced all of his critics. 
Well, if you don't know the scriptures, you don't understand the power of God and that his omnipotence extends to having the power over the grave. How wonderful to see from the scriptures that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. His people who have passed from this life are fully alive in the spirit realm. And one day their body that is pictured as sleeping will rise in glorified form to live in the kingdom. I love this little piece. I don't know if you've seen it before. Those of you on the front row can read with me. Maybe a little further back. Even for the dead, I will not bind my soul to grief. Death cannot long divide. For is it not as though the rose that climbed my garden wall has blossomed on the other side? Death doth hide but not divide. Thou art but on Christ's other side. Thou art with Christ and Christ with me. In Christ united, still are we. I love that. D.L. Moody, when he was dying, said, Earth recedes and heaven opens before me. Moody's son, Will, who was by his father's side, assumed he must be dreaming. But Moody said... No, this is no dream. It is beautiful. It is like a trance. If this is death, it is sweet. There is no valley here. God is calling me, and I must go. And he died a short time later. One time, D.L. Moody said, Someday you will read in the papers, The Moody is dead. Don't believe a word of it. (laughs) At that moment, I will be more alive than I am now. Jesus said, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I do. I believe it. And I hope you do too. Let's stand and have our closing song.